0: welcome to the metcast this is where creative believers are encouraged to become great artists my name is Matt Anderson. I want to thank you for joining us on a very special episode. Well, this week, in light of the Independence Day holiday, I wanted to bring something very special. We did this two years ago, and I wanted to do it again in light of the celebration of our birth as a country. And so the Matt Cast proudly presents... An American Art Story. national anthem it may be the most famous song in American history and possibly its most famous export the tune and lyrics have not only been almost immortalized in the United States but have also been used in some form by countries in every region of the world including Europe Asia and Australia. It has been covered by many great musical artists over the decades and in almost every genre including classical, gospel, rock, country, folk, jazz, and even metal. It has been used by countless groups and causes to bring attention to their plight. It has been sung at celebrations, memorials, and everything in between. It has been used in church worship services, labor protests, college football games, and even a few who represent the opposite of the song's lyrics. It has been played or sung for such people as President George H.W. Bush, Walt Disney, Robert Kennedy, and Winston Churchill. A version of the song would win a Grammy Award for the Mormon Tabernacle Choir in 1960. It inspired titles of famous novels by John Steinbeck and John Updike. Mark Twain would write a parody of the song to comment against America's involvement in the Philippines. The song is an unavoidable force. But to properly understand the battle hymn of the Republic, you have to go back to where it all began. And by that, I do not mean the civil war, which many naturally believe to be its origin. No, you actually have to turn back the clock to the late 1700s and the second great awakening in the United States. It was a time of spiritual renewal and revival. Evangelists like John Wesley and other what were called circuit riders went from town to town on horseback, preaching in tents and open air fields. It would start in Kentucky and Tennessee, and it would see tremendous growth among the Presbyterians, Methodists and Baptists, and spread out from there. It was almost a national revival. The era was also famous for its music and what were called camp meeting hymns. Uh, Many of these songs were centered on heaven, urging the listener to change their life so as not to miss Jesus and eternity because of their sin. A number of these songs were created on the spot and not written down for many years. They were just passed on orally from generation to generation. One such song was called Say Brothers, Will You Meet Us, or it was also called Canaan's Happy Shore. It would be decades later that the song would first appear in written form in Henry Ward Beecher's Plymouth collection. Though the tune cannot be traced uh, to a particular author, the lyrics would be claimed by William Steph in 1856 say brothers will you meet us say brothers will you meet us say brothers will you meet us on canaan's happy shore in the 1850s was becoming increasingly divided over the issue of slavery and its outgrowths. The song was beloved by all sectors of the nation. We'll fast forward to 1859. The division in the country has only grown deeper. Even abolitionists, uh, opponents of slavery who did not believe in violence, were becoming anxious. One such man in Kansas, named John Brown, decided he was going to be God's instrument. By taking a detachment of men, they would invade the United States Armory in Harper's Ferry, Virginia. He would then arm the slaves from there, and in his thought, ensue a slave revolt all over the South. Well, it didn't work out that way as John Brown and many in his team were either killed or arrested in fact he would be the first american tried and executed for treason and that would happen less than two months after the incident he would be executed by hanging in december 1859. however brown was only able to attempt this raid with the help of six abolitionists who provided funds to Brown and his men to attempt their mission. They were known as the Secret Six. Five of the six were from Massachusetts, which really was the hotbed of abolitionism. One of those was named Samuel Howe. And when Brown was arrested, Howe fled for Canada out of fear of being seen as a collaborator to treason. So Samuel Howe would temporarily leave his wife Julia and their children for a season to remain safe. By May 1861, the Civil War was one month old and the 2nd Infantry Battalion of the Massachusetts Militia, known as the Tiger Battalion, decided to have a little fun with the familiar camp meeting song and create different words. Well, it turns out the battalion had a a young Scotsman soldier in its ranks, coincidentally named John Brown. Unfortunately, he was kind of more known for being a bit of a slacker as a soldier, often arriving late for drill, being unprepared, things like this. So the guys in the battalion decided to collectively add new lyrics to the Say Brother song, both as a tribute to the abolitionist John Brown, and secondly, as a way to rib the young man of the same name in their regiment. Thus arose the song, John Brown's Body. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. His soul is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, His soul is marching on. The stars of heaven are looking kindly down, The stars of heaven are looking kindly down, the stars of heaven are a looking kindly down on the grave of old John Brown. Glory glory hallelujah. Glory glory hallelujah. Glory glory hallelujah. His soul is marching on. Well the song gained popularity especially as a marching song by the military. And since few of them knew of the young soldier, the song was expressly a tribute to the Raider of Harper's Ferry. Which brings us to Julia Ward Howe. She had been born and raised in New York City and was living a rather privileged lifestyle by the time of her young adulthood, she was considered a wealthy heiress. Though rather spoiled and pampered, her life was also filled with tragedy and loss. Her father was a wealthy man and a frequent traveler, and he would often send books home to build a robust library. Well, Julia would read as many books as she could as her father traveled. She was much more educated than most women of her day, and she aspired to do great things. But by 1861, we see that she seemed to more be enduring a difficult marriage with her husband Samuel, Samuel Howe, the same man who had fled to Canada. Of course, he had secretly funded John Brown and had escaped prosecution until he felt it was safe to return. So this caused Julia to be alone with the children for a time. Up to that point, her husband, even though he seemed to be very progressive in his ideas, he he helped reform prisoners, he advocated for education of the blind, he went to Greece during their revolution and served as a surgeon. However, at home, he was very traditional. As far as his thoughts of marriage and family were concerned, at no point did he want Julia to do anything outside the home. She was simply to be a wife and mother. Julia loved her children dearly, but she had other aspirations as well. She spent the first several years of her marriage engaged in rearing children and reading philosophy when she could, attempting to reconcile herself to her new life in Boston. She would publish a collection of poems anonymously because that's how she had to do it. The poetry was not so much well received, but the content of the poems was very specific and many in the wealthy Boston community were able to figure out who it was that was writing the poems. It was undoubted to them that it was Julia doing the writing and exposing. Her husband, realizing this, was angry and humiliated. Such was the tumultuous nature of their relationship. In spite of their differences, one thing they could agree on was the abolitionist cause. Samuel had founded an anti-slavery newspaper, which Julia edited. By November of 1861, the initial enthusiasm of the Civil War had ground to a halt. It was clear that the skirmish was now a full-scale war with no end in sight. She joined a group of people who went to inspect the condition of Union troops near Washington, D.C., Now, to overcome the boredom of the carriage ride back to the city, Julia and her friends began to sing army songs, and one of those was John Brown's Body. Well, since the start of the war, the lyrics had sort of morphed into we'll hang old Jeff Davis from a sour apple tree. The Reverend James Clark, a member of that group, knowing Julia was a gifted writer, told her that he always liked the tune, but the words of the song kind of needed sprucing up. Well, Julia agreed. So, Reverend Clark wondered if she could maybe give it a go. Sleeping on it overnight, Julia awoke inspired. She would later write about the experience, quote, I awoke the next morning in the gray of the early dawn, and to my astonishment, found that the wished-for lines were arranging themselves in my brain. I lay quite still until the last verse had completed itself in my thoughts, then hastily arose, saying to myself, I shall lose this if I don't write it down immediately. I began to scrawl the lines almost without looking. Having completed this, I lay down again and fell asleep but not before feeling that something of importance had happened to me." Understatement of the century. Something of importance had happened to her and through her. Julia Ward Howe had turned a camp meeting song that was turned into a folk hero song into a hymn. months later, James T. Fields, the editor of The Atlantic Monthly, would pay Julia the incredible sum of $5 to publish the poem in their magazine. It is Fields who would title it The Battle Hymn of the Republic. The song purposely evokes biblical language in an effort to take the moral high ground in the North's cause. Both sides of the Civil War would assume that God was on their side and would help them to prevail. But the battle hymn takes this to a place not before seen. The song portrays Union soldiers as agents of the Lord, executing God's wrath upon the South for their slavery they would be the agents figuratively wielding the lightning of God's sword against their enemy. It was also a call to those who had not yet enlisted to join what would be God's army and if necessary to die to make men free. The song was a pure slap in the face to the slavery movement and the call to arms. Not every Union soldier was an abolitionist at the start of the war. Even President Lincoln, who personally abhorred slavery, did not make it a centerpiece of his campaign when he ran in 1860. He repeatedly said that his primary goal was preserving the Union. However, as the war progressed, he and I believe even the soldiers realized that slavery had to be addressed and the matter forever settled in the United States. In 1863, he would issue the Emancipation Proclamation, freeing all slaves in the South. He would eventually help push through Congress and the states the 13th Amendment which would forever end the practice of slavery in our country. The battle hymn almost single-handedly made it impossible to sit on the sidelines of slavery any longer. One had to be on one side or the other. Julia Ward Howe would become nationally known for the rest of her life because of her $5 poem. She would use that celebrity to advocate for other causes, like women's suffrage. It is amazing that a song so specifically geared to a cause would not only survive, but thrive long after the cause was settled. I believe it is because other groups, equally convinced of their cause, whatever that might be, use the song as an effort to convince others that their cause is just and holy. In April 1968, while speaking to a group in Memphis, Tennessee, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final public words would be the very first words of the battle hymn. A long life, longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he has allowed me to go up to the mountain My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. It is a song that inspires. It is a song that endures. There is something about the melody and words that stir the soul, regardless of your political affiliation. It reaches into you and almost demands attention. One cannot hear it without their heartbeat increasing at least a little bit. And even as musical tastes and generations have changed, the song seems to still connect on a visceral level. One amazing example is a rendition by the great Whitney Houston in 1991 in Norfolk, Virginia. She was performing for a group of 3,500 servicemen and women who had just come home from the first Gulf War in Iraq. It was broadcast live by HBO and made available even to those who did not have a subscription. After finishing her Welcome Home Heroes concert and walking off stage, she returned for one encore. Please stand and sing this song with me. Would you please? It's the battle hymn of Republic. And if it you was know possible, I know you do. Julia Ward Howe somewhere was smiling. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed. His faithful lightning. This song is quintessentially American. It is not a perfect song and many have taken aim at it over the years, but yet it still stands because there is something inherently good and right about it. And today, in the midst of what some fear to be another civil war down the road, I think it's only appropriate to return to a song that proclaims freedom and God's role in it. The only other question is what our role will be. Will I insist on God being on my side or will I, like Abraham Lincoln once said, pray that I am on God's side, whatever that is? May the truth, not my truth, God's truth, go marching on. Thank you for listening to the Mattcast and an American Art Story. Thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.